In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Our Bible study tonight from Psalm 75. There is a title for each psalm, and the title of this psalm is To the Chief Musician, Set to Do Not Destroy, A Psalm of Asaph, a song. So, who is the chief musician? Some said it is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, or others said it is a reference to the leaders of the choir of musicians, like Heman the singer, as we read in First Chronicles chapter 6, verse 33, and chapter 25, verse 6. Then, set to do not destroy. So, do not destroy is the tune, and the same tune used from Psalm 57 to 59. So, do not destroy can be a beginning of a psalm, and to the tune of this psalm, the other psalms are chanted. For example, when we say, this song start or chanted like that song. So he is saying Psalm 75 is chanted like the psalm that start with Do Not Destroy. Not necessarily a psalm of David, uh, Do Not Destroy, but a, a common song or a common psalm that was prayed at that time. Also, according to Saint Jerome, Do Not Destroy may also refer to David's determination not to destroy King Saul, or David's plea that God would not allow him to be destroyed. St. Jerome says, The word destroy or corrupt has shadows of several meaning used by David, as do not destroy meaning do not kill, namely do not kill Saul. So, as if David, David reminding himself, David, do not kill Saul. Don't stretch your hand against the anointed of the Lord. And in another location, St. Jerome continues, David blesses the Lord who did not let him stretch his hand to kill Saul, the Lord's anointed. And according to the title, the author is Asaph, and it is a song. Asaph was the great singer and musician of David's and Solomon's era. And also Asaph was a prophet in his musical composition. Like Psalm 74, the psalm before this, we can find in this psalm many prophecies about the Antichrist, the end of the world, etc. Some believe that this Psalm 75 was written by David and delivered to Asaph to sing it. The message of despair in Psalm 74, the previous Psalm, is followed here by a Psalm of exaltation. So, Psalm 74 started by a message of despair, Psalm 75 starts with a message of exaltation. In some ways, this Psalm Psalm 75 is God's answer to the questions presented in Psalm 74. 
Let me remind you. In Psalm 74, Asaph asked, O God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blaspheme your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand? So these are questions. In Psalm 75, we will find the answer in verse 2. God says, when I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. So maybe you are in rush to see the judgment of God. But God's answer is, in the proper time, I will judge uprightly. Also, Psalm 75 is a psalm of thanksgiving to God for his righteous judgment. And this psalm has some similarities to the song of Hannah, mother of Samuel, as we will point out during our Bible study. Also, Psalm 75 and 76 are both songs of reassurance of God's justice when things seem to be going so well for the wicked. So when we see things going so well for the wicked and we are confused, Psalm 75 and 76 assured us of God's judgment. It is a short psalm, only 10 verses. Verse 1, praising God for his present mercies. 2 and 3, God's response. 4 to 8, warnings to the wicked. 9 and 10, God promises to raise up the righteous. Let's start with verse 1. We give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks. For your wondrous works declare that your name is near. So Asaph here is writing on behalf of the whole congregation. They say together, we give thanks to you, O God. And the repetition for emphasis, because it was repeated twice, we give thanks to you, O God, we give thanks. So this repetition for emphasis. The people of God gladly give thanks unto their God. Thanksgiving to God should be a constant offering of his people. This psalm is, as the title implies, a song for the congregation of his people to give thanks to God collectively when they are assembled in the temple. And the psalmist specifies that God is near to them and his past wondrous deeds, reasons for his thanksgiving. As he said, why we give thanks to you for your wondrous works in the past and currently declare that your name is near. Your name is near. So they give thanks to God not only for his wondrous works, but for what those works proclaimed. Proclaimed what? That God in all his character and attribute was near to the people. By the way, the word your name, that your name is near, one's name in Hebrew culture represent his entire character. And God is known by name to people. So 
that's why usually in the Old Testament, when they give name, the name has a meaning. So, for example, when God gave Abraham the name Abraham, because now he is father to many nations. When Adam gave name Eve to his wife, because she is mother of every living being. When he gave her the name woman, because she was taken from rib, etc. So, the name is not just a name, but the name in the Hebrew culture represents the entire character. So, the psalmist is giving thanks not only for the wondrous works of God, but that God himself is near. When he says your name is near, means you are near, as well as we can feel and experience your attributes, attributes of providence, care, wisdom, righteousness, and love. We experience all these things because you are near to us. So the righteous delights and give thanks that God is near to them. The closeness of God is a comfort to his people. But the enemies of God escape and run away from God. It is a good thing to reflect and to recount how God has worked in our lives, wondrous works. Such reflection will lead to thanksgiving. And giving thanks in the Bible is not simply saying thank you to God, but rather proclaiming publicly what God has done so others may know and acknowledge God too for his wondrous works. Verse 2, now God is speaking in verse 2. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. So in these two verses, God speaks, as in Psalm 46, verse 10. And his words are an answer to our thoughts. Many times we say, where is God? Why is this appearing? why he had ceased to judge the earth, why wickedness are flourishing around us. So God is telling us, no, it is not so. It's, it, I, I did not cease to judge the earth, but I am waiting for the appropriate time to take an action. When I choose the proper time, I will judge uprightly. So God declares that he will judge and that he will judge uprightly. As Abraham understood that the judge of all the earth will do right, will judge uprightly. And in his judgment, God reserves the right to choose the proper time. We often feel that we know the proper time for God's judgment. And we are often troubled because God does not seem to share our perspective. We see right now is the right time for God to judge the, the earth. We want to see consequences for those who commit evil acts against us. But God is telling us, yes, justice will come, but it will come on God's timing. In all of this, God is in charge. He completes his judgment 
not according to people's impatient expectation, but the exact time which he has himself chosen. The believer should have a humble trust in the uprightness of God's judgment and in the proper time for them. God will judge uprightly means in equity, in the most righteous manner, as we say in St. Basil's liturgy, give each one according to his deeds. No injustice will be done to men, but pronouncing the several sentences on the righteous and on the wicked will be done with the sincerest integrity, uprightness, and impartiality. Verses 3 The earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved. I will set up its pillars firmly. Sila. So, it is God who is ultimately the judge of all. And it is God who set up pillars of the earth's foundation firmly. So what does it mean the earth and all its inhabitants are dissolved? When confusion reigns, people are confused why the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer every day. So people are confused. So this confusion, like the earth, is dissolved. But God will re-establish the order when he said, I will set up its pillars firmly. Though the crisis be such that all is confusion and chaos, but there is no cause for fear because God will put everything in order again. God upholds and will uphold both the moral and physical order of things. As Hannah, mother of Samuel, prayed, and you can find this in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 8, he raises the poor from the dust and lifts the bigger from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. Of course, there is no pillar, physical pillar. But the pillar, like the gravity, that, that keep the earth in its place. Then the word sila, sila means oppose. Oppose to reflect on these words of God. To reflect that the rightness, the timing, and the power of God's judgment are all worthy of our deep consideration. It is as though God rebuking us for our haste to judge the wicked or to be rescued from them, saying, as if God is saying to us, Why are you in such a hurry? The earth on which you and the wicked live is the work of my hand. And if I take my care and on or my power away from the earth, it would dissolve like wax. Nothing or any being on earth can live without God. So God is saying to us, do not get disturbed even by those who oppose me or my church 
or my people. For I set the pillars of the earth, granted its balance, knows exactly how much it weighs, and when will be the appointed time for it to dissolve, for the divine justice to be fulfilled, and also the oppressed to enjoy their reward. I set up its pillars firmly, as if God knows the way of the earth. Sila. Verse 4. I said to the boastful, do not deal boastfully, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Who is he speaking here? Verse 2 and 3, God is speaking. But who is he speaking in verse 4? Some commentators believe that God is still speaking, while others feel that the psalmist Asaph is recording God's word from God's perspective. Why others feel now it's Asaph who is recording God's word, not God himself? For two reasons. Number one, Sila at the end of verse 3 mark end of divine speech, and we need to reflect on what God said. Also, verse 4 starts by I said. I said naturally introduces a different speaker. Here in these verses, from verse 4 to 8, is a warning to all arrogant braggers based on the divine utterances in verse 2 and 3. So, when we know that God will judge and will judge uprightly, so there is a warning here for the proud for the boastful, to no longer boast and exalt their own strength, and no longer to lift up the horn. I said to the boastful, to the proud, don't deal boastfully, and to the wicked, do not lift up the horn. Lifting its horn means by which the animal expresses its will and its power. So animals, when they lift the horn, mean there is a will and power. So to exalt oneself is totally to deny God and to deny that God actually is the one who gave me the gift that I have. And also to deny God the credit he deserves for his great and wondrous works. That's why St. Peter tells us, Be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but gives the grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Verse 5. Do not lift up your horn on high. Again, the same meaning. Do not speak with a stiff neck. Do not speak with a stiff neck. What is stiff neck? The figure of stiff neck was taken from the world of agriculture. When ox or cattle resist the yoke for plowing and other work. So God is warning the proud and wicked not to resist him in the same way. Then in verse 6, he says, For exaltation 
comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Which means, if you're expecting to be exalted, the psalmist gives the reason why we have no right to exalt ourselves. For exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south. Because God is the judge, and whom God exalts will be exalted. Exaltation comes from God. Asaph hoped to teach the proud ones whom he warned in previous lines. They should first know that their exaltation, their success, and standing did not come from the earth, north, east, south. So their exaltation did not come from earth or human creativity. They should stop their proud confidence in themselves. Yes, we may get help from others. We may find allies in looking to the east and to the west. But ultimately, it is God who delivers us, whether directly or through using other means. The word exaltation means the desire of self-advancement. Desire of self-advancement. And would teach us that all our inward and outward plans cannot advance us. All our inward and outward plans cannot advance us unless they are based upon the fear and love of God unless they are based on the fear and the love of God. Verse 7, But God is a judge. Don't exalt yourself. Let God exalt you. He puts down one and exalts another. He puts down one and exalts another. God is a judge. All depends on Him. Not on human strength, human skill, or human expertise. This is another reason why fools should not deal foolishly, nor wicked men lift up the horn and speak with a stiff neck, because there is a judge to whom they are accountable for their words and their actions. This judge is God, omniscient, knows all people and things, searches the hearts and the reins, and will bring every secret thing into judgment. It is God who puts down one and exalts another. He humbles and puts down such as are proud, haughty, and arrogant. And he exalts another such are the lowly in heart and the humble. He is a mighty judge, as we read in Daniel chapter 4. The most high rules in the kingdom of men, gives it to whomever he will, and sits over it the lowest of men. So the kingdom of men, God will give it to whomever he wills, and he will sit over this kingdom even the lowest of men. This is not to say that hard work and other human aspects do not contribute to success because they clearly do. Yet, even those things like hard work and like creativity, talents, 
are gifts and abilities from God and should be regarded with humility and gratitude toward him who granted me all these gifts. Verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It's fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. There is a cup and the wine is red. It is the cup of God's wrath. This is a metaphor that's commonly used in the Bible. The cup in the hand of God is his wrath. So when God speaks about drinking the cup of wine that is in his hand, it always speaks about severe judgment. This cup of wrath is prepared beforehand by God. So Asaph is realizing that though he wants judgment to come now, judgment will eventually come and it will bring adversity upon the wicked. Then this cup actually is mixed. It's fully mixed. What does it mean fully? it's fully mixed? The wrath of God is well mixed and poured on all the wicked until the very last drop has been swallowed, which means there will be no mercy for the wicked, no mercy for those who are not merciful. The Lord will not hold back in his judgment against them. And it's fully mixed means, has many ingredients in it, herbs and spices to make it stronger and more effective and intoxicating. And all the wicked of the earth, the wrath of God will not be confined to one nation or one people, but whenever wicked people are found, he will punish them. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. God will be just in his dealings with all people. Verse 9, But I will declare forever, I will sing praises, to the God of Jacob. The psalmist respond to God's coming righteous judgment. So how he responded when he knew that God will come to judge the world. He said, I will declare forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. So in contrast to the wicked of the earth, Asaph spoke for the people of God who declare and rejoice in the judgment of God. So the wicked are terrified by the judgment of God, but the righteous will rejoice and they will declare the righteousness of God forever. So while the wicked are drunk with the wrath wine, the righteous will rejoice and praise God. Last verse, verse 10. All the horns of the wicked I will also cut off. But the hordes of the righteous shall be exalted. Again, who is speaking here? I will cut off. Is it God or Asaph? If the psalmist is the speaker, he speaks in the name of Israel, confident that in God's strength, they will be able to complete the humiliation of their proud enemies. 
but the speaker may be God himself, answering the vow of praise with additional promise. So people are saying, I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. So God, in response to this vow, he said, all the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. We often actually think of God's righteous judgment negatively, but there is a positive aspect of God's righteous judgment, because the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. When God will give each one according to his deeds, the righteous will be exalted by the judgment of God. So as surely as he will cut off the arrogant pride of the wicked, their horns, he will also exalt the strength of the righteous. St. Augustine says, the horns of the sinners are the dignities of the proud men, and the horn of the just are the gifts of Christ. This actually concludes Psalm 75. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.